0: One,
1: two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, where the podcast that gets people talking like there's no microphone in front of them using the power of music and the way it binds to memories in an almost mystical way. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Connery. My guest today is Luke Century. He's a self-taught artist who lives out on Sanibel Island. But first, he was born in Newark, New Jersey, and studied business at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. He says his primary interest as a young student was art, specifically photography. He got into etching while working at a resort engraving people's names on snow skis. Then a window washing job in the 1970s led to a four-year exploration of how to transfer images and color onto glass, which resulted in a process for creating stencils that could be used in sandblast engraving, which he has applied extensively and prolifically over the years. He might be best known for being the person who engraved the more than 58,000 names into the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. Luke's bio says his considerable spiritual energy and heartfelt intent is always at play, and that his love of nature, the aesthetic beauty that lies within, is permanently embedded in his work. And as someone who has seen lots of his work over the years, I'd say that's quite true and evident. He's lived on Sanibel now for 30 years with his illustrator wife, Dee, cranking out the art and living the island life. Well, I've met Luke a few times over the years. We've never really had a chance to talk and get to know each other at all, but that's why we're here today. So let's go. Hey there, Luke. Nice to see you again. Oh, great to see you, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> business. You studied business in college? <laughs> I <laughs> got to start there. In, 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 review, in uncovering your background, I, that's what stopped me in my tracks. How yeah. did, whose idea was that?
0: I think it was process of elimination. Um, I I was taking intro psychology or whatever I could, you know, do intro-wise to try to stimulate an interest academically. And it just didn't really connect, and then business
1: just seemed to be the the last resort. <laughs> well, what about what about art? If you were if you were into art before you got to college, was that even a consideration at the time, or was that just not something that one did?
0: Well, I went to like a pre professional school at Case Western Reserve, and everybody around me was trying to do something that you know they'd come out with a degree and then apply it that way um, professionally, and so. Photography is how I was accessing the art as a, a, a young man, you know, in, in junior high school. But it never really connected in college. I took maybe one, one art course. So I was always self-taught and, I, and it was fine. It was more like a hobby. How did you get started in photography? Oh, well, actually, um, I was, it was ninth grade and uh, a neighbor – just offered a uh, knew that I was interested in, in photography because I, I was I had a camera and he said you know I just don't utilize my darkroom anymore would you like to have it I I, I was floored hmm. I mean. It it was an offer that I've never, I've never had someone really just give me, especially at
1: that age. I mean, as a ninth grader, that's it was, it was really something.
0: And I was so excited. And my parents happened to have a third, uh, a third floor without it being utilized. And so I went upstairs to that bathroom, and just threw the darkroom together. And it's like I, I went up and at night and just never came down. I was just entranced with
1: it. What kind of camera were you using?
0: It was always seemed to be a canon. Okay. Um, you know, um, my
1: goodness. You know, it, it's it, it started probably with a, a single reflex. Mm-hmm. And do uh, you ever do any medium medium format stuff or any of the larger print sizes or the I, larger you know negative? I think I got a t- up to a two and a quarter. Okay.
0: But I ended up with a four by five and larger. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was um. I developed another technique that maybe we can get into later on. Um, oh,
1: I definitely want to get into the <laughs> <any> other techniques.
0: <laughs> All right? Yeah, they're, they're I'm different. a self-taught
1: experimental artist myself, so I want to pick your brain. <laughs> yeah,
0: alternative photographic techniques seem to be, you know, the direction I was headed into and, and, and with the engraving as well, which is what I ended up doing.
1: Um, uh, do you – still take pictures today? Do you have a digital camera? When was the last time you were in a dark room? Do you still shoot film ever?
0: I use a dark room for a totally different process. It's photographic, but it's it's done without a camera or a lens. And and basically, I mean, that's these days, the last 30 years. So I developed a technique where you just are uh, using photo paper and, and raw light, and hopefully you're going to get the extraneous energy around you, let's say. And it does, uh, in my mind, <laughs> materialize um, bizarrely to most people. How do you how do you see that actually being possible? But that's how experimental I am. I'm trying to see what we radiate as as people. And 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 it seems to me as though the photo. Medium is a receptor to that. One of the things – we're totally
1: off the rails here. That's okay. That's fine. That's what I love about this show. We go anywhere we want. It's it's our show. Um, I've always tried to consciously find ways to instill or capture randomness in my photography somehow. And that Mm -hmm. seems like kind of what you're after. Well – I, no, I, I random,
0: you know, it, it or is. just
1: something that takes my. You know, I don't want total control. I want there to right. be something else that has some shared control with me. That and that's I'm with that, you that, on that. Okay, uh, so
0: totally, and and so I'm very open, and and uh, it just seems as though the mind is very extensive. Okay, and uh, I I I just this is all ex- experiential. Uh, it's not a, a religious thing or anything where I came to. Um, only, only on my own through experimenting through art, did I realize that you know uh, that looks very familiar, and I just don't believe that many people have really looked through the gray matter. Let's say, if you're in a dark room and 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 you know you, you have a mistake, instead of you know like stay all of a sudden the light came on. If sometimes like it's as simple as pouring cream in your coffee and 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 it becoming a pattern. But somehow I believe that we are vibratory creatures and the mind can be at play here. And so I'm an experimenter and I've come up with some amazing results in my opinion.
1: Cool, cool. Well, let's get back on the three song stories train. What was the musical background of your childhood? You grew up up north. What was happening to you around you musically through your parents and just your world? I was... uh, I lived in New Jersey, in in Clifton, New
0: Jersey, until I was eight. And my only memories are of, of music back then are when my mom would take me to the city, to New York City, and we'd go to hear, like, Leonard Bernstein's um, children's uh, music sessions, you know, with the Philharmonic. Okay. And I just remember being up close and Leonard being very... Very uh, conductive in, in his uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, playful way and was impacted that way as well as I remember being take to, taken to some Pete Seeger concerts. Oh. And I, I think the, the – and, and those were very impactful as well. So I think I, I went twice. and But you know, record-wise, I just remember musicals. Okay, um, that's what your folks were playing, or that's what, that's what they were playing, and there was a piano in the house, and I think I, I, I was, you know, taking some piano lessons. So you did play a little bit of piano, a little bit, but classical music is all
1: I was kind of being taught at the time. So there's no radio playing the popular music of the time. I don't
0: remember listening to the radio.
1: Back, back then it's
0: just I don't know I think I was just running around playing ball mostly uh, do
1: you uh um, remember what the first music that you owned was as a kid or as a young you know a young adult probably the Beatles yeah um uh, I think it was maybe in sixth
0: grade uh, when that came to the states and and it was just happening and You're right I just I, I don't ever remember buying the album but I did Buy a Beatles lunchbox, <laughs> and then I that I had my mom make sandwiches for, and and um and then I even remember the Beatles haircut that everybody tried to emulate. Can you remember
1: what your folks thought of the Beatles? Did they have an impression or a opinion no, I one think, way or you know, another? My, my
0: folks just whatever I was, whatever struck my curiosity, they supported. And and so uh, I don't remember exactly how they they felt about it. I was, a, I think my sister and I were the crazy ones, you know, about the music. Right. And they would p- be playing classical music on the piano throughout the house, and and th- that's my memory of their involvement in music was opera and classical music.
1: Can you remember the first time music moved you somehow? As somebody who seems like your your mind is open to. Emotion and spirituality and the way things all tie together. Can you remember a, a musical moment that tapped into something? Uh, you know, not
0: not really. I I just ended up dancing a lot. Tonight. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So I became a dancer. I mean, I I remember being moved all from the beginning, and and I, even it was classical. I mean, to the point where it's just like if I went to say, I ended up being in Cleveland for after, eight, after uh, eight years of age. And I remember going to Severance Hall a lot to the concerts. And I remember, you know, there wasn't much movement going on in the audience, but I I my head started to rock. And I was just like moving to the classics. And, and no one else around me would, but I just let it go. And... Um,
1: Still a dancer today? I am. I am. Uh, uh, we, uh, did yeah. I read in your... On your website that you met your wife on the dance floor? We
0: did. We did up at the crow's nest on, on Captiva at Tween Waters Inn. Um, and it was in 19, 1983. And we literally bumped into each other. No one was on that dance floor, but I think I was headed to the can and came back. And then she crossed over and somehow we knocked into each other and I asked her to dance. It was just, it was just going to happen that way.
1: How did you wind up on Santa Bella in 1983? Well, I was actually um,
0: taking a reprieve from engraving names on the wall okay. uh, on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C. So that was
1: in the midst of that happening.
0: Yes, and, and it was because I was adding names after it was dedicated and installed. And so I just needed to get uh, to a beach. So I, I, was, I ended up in Miami and I was going to head out to the Keys and um, I ended up going to uh, the Jets-Dolphins game. The moment, the day I flew in, because my cousin took me, I had rented a car with everything in it, and when we came back from the, from the game, my car was stolen. My rental car was <laughs> okay. stolen. Okay, so I was I was thwarted, and somehow I met a guy at a party who said, Hey, you know, if I was looking for a beach, I'd go to this place called Sanibel, and I. I said, I have no clue where this is. He, he said, do you have a map? I took out that map and put it on the hood of my new rental car. And uh, lo and behold, he pointed it out. And I said, I'm, I'm headed over there. And so I just happened to, to make it to Sanibel on, on the fact that I was
1: thwarted. <laughs> so and, and, then, and then you met your wife and then you moved there and then you still are here today and all because of serendipity. Oh, so much
0: synchronicity and serendipity going on. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I live my life that way. And it used to be rare when it would happen, you know? Yeah. Uh, and now it's like if it doesn't happen every day, it's, it's, I feel like I'm off. <laughs> oh, th- thumbs up to that. <laughs>
1: yeah. let's, uh, let's move to your first song. Great. What is your first song? Uh, the first song is Four Dead in Ohio. Ohio. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the story behind it or do you want to let's listen to it and then we can come out of it and you can be fresh in the moment yeah
0: let's listen to it first okay That'd be great
1: all right this is four dead in ohio by crosby stills nash and young from the 1971 album four-way street you're listening to three song stories it's biography for music so where and when does that take
0: you well, I believe it's 1968, um, Kent State. I was in Cleveland at the time, and uh, we were young activists, and um, there was just a lot of work that even a youngster of my at my age was feeling that we needed to do to try to um, sever our involvement with Vietnam. Uh, and uh, there was a, there was a lot of um, a lot of protesting going on. On the streets, and um, a lot of opportunity to to raise your hand and say I I, I have a voice, and um, and I we half of the community was really you know against the war, and the other half was um, for the administration's policies, and and we were just speaking our minds, and um, I was. Uh, a member of the Student Mobilization Committee, and uh, we were trying to uh, express that uh, you know uh, resisting the draft was okay, and it was a, you know it was a, a draft. It's different than it is today, where it's a volunteer army. So if your number came up, you were going. And I knew soon soon enough that it, I was going to be of age myself. Right. So you know you were working
1: for the process to work, you
0: know, for you as well as for
1: others. Do you remember the first time you heard that song? Do you remember, because um, it's got you know that song's got a lot mm-hmm. of uh, cultural energy in it. Yeah,
0: I, I think I I remember uh, listening to it a lot. Uh, the first time, I don't know if I'm really my mind's really wired that way. Well, yeah,
1: no, yeah, but I, I don't really mean it when I say that. I was it that working
0: way. at a camp up in. New Hampshire. It was called World Fellowship Camp, and I remember underneath the sign it said, "All races, creeds, and kinds were welcome here." And we had uh, some of the Kent State uh, people who were running at the time from the law uh, make it up that way. And so I think that's that's partly how I was intertwined with it was that, that, that there were there there were people on. Um, not knowing where to go because they were they were being hustled after,
1: so let's bridge that then to fifteen or so years later, how did you wind up on the Vietnam memorial project, and what must have that been like for you emotionally and psychologically mm-hmm. to, to be on suddenly on the you know what I mean on another spectrum with it, yeah, yeah, I mean down you're on yeah
0: well I you know it's interesting because I um, I was in, I was getting into healing at the time you know I thought well maybe maybe I could do massage therapy or whatever you know I just felt like a calling there and so I was more into you know um, having everybody just feeling better about who they were and so uh, I at the, at the moment you know the whole, uh death aspect of building a memorial I, I i was I felt totally different than how I did with initially you know as a youngster during the war this was this was part of recognizing um, people who were fighting for a cause and who were caught up in something and felt great honor in 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 uh, being involved in in the calling to go to war and I I was okay with that because um, I know I was calling against it, but this is this is the result. This this is something that maybe we can learn from. And as powerful as the memorial as Maya Lin created, I'm, I'm I'm certain that that's how it has ended up. Is that we are all, uh, it's registered, you know, on a very deep level for us as a nation, and uh, we need to evolve. Hopefully. Is to uh, what war is and when it's well-suited.
1: You know, um, a friend of mine's daughter is um, – I don't know if you've seen through media reports or you may even know Or Stacey Brown's daughter, um, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah, is the one who's done the um, collateral damage installations, she calls it, where she writes down the names of the victims of mass shootings. And I interviewed her and we talked about – what that's like? She's done it like four times now to like be in the presence of those names, mm. you know, over and over again. What was that like for you? I mean, was it just did you have to detach and sort of just be mm-hmm. mechanical about it, or mm-hmm. you know, how did that work? Well, what I I did two aspects
0: for the memorial. I, I called Maya Lynn and told her I thought I had a, a technique to to do the initial fifty eight thousand names, and and she had just been. You know, taken aback by how she was being received and she was a little curt with me on the phone. I just happened to call her in Athens and, and um, I got her mom and then I was there calling the project director in no time flat and so I developed a technique for the original 58,000 and so I was dealing with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund and so getting that done was not done with the public. right? But then they, after dedication day, they asked me to come up with a technique to add the names. So all of a sudden, I found myself at the wall adding names with the public coming, mm-hmm. and so trying to focus on, on doing a job that was very critical and and you couldn't you couldn't screw up. Right. Um, I was very very focused, and um, but people were coming up to me and asking me questions a lot, and I didn't really have much of a a guard there, and so uh, it was very, very difficult. People were coming to the wall for the first time trying to find their loved ones and whatnot. And then I had a job to do, but I needed to be sensitive. So yeah, it was, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. How long did it take you overall? Well, adding the names was was the biggest challenge for me cuz uh, you have to prefabricate a stencil and then go on site and deal with the environment, right. okay? So I I was adding names for 3 years and I added wow. actually actually uh, exactly 100 names which equals my last name just happened hmm. to be that way. But originally um the we did the original 58,000 in about 3 or 4 months. So we got it done in time. Uh we we uh we saved them about $7 million and a process that was not known in the industry. So we, uh,
1: we probably saved them three years too. Real quickly, what is the process? And I've seen you do the sandblast thing. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. was, that, was it, granite was being carved in an old-fashioned way and then you said, hey, I can do it using mm-hmm. this basically. Yes. Is that kind of it in a nutshell? Yes, it is because it, it was done with a cookie cutter method before
0: where you, it was a stamp. And you would, with a, a, a stamp, cut out the perimeter of the lettering with a sharp blade, and and you would have had to like put all these these letters in a slot, and then just stamp out this name, and then put it, align it uh, by hand. And so I, when I called and said I I could do this photographically and very efficiently, the the project director fell out of his chair, and. And I sent them samples right away, and um, I was written. My, my process was just absorbed immediately. So, um, what was your question?
1: <laughs> no, no, yeah, you, you explained uh, it. Yeah, I just—I've uh, always just wondered, you know, because I know I I'd heard through stories that you know they said it was going to take you know thirty years, and you said I could do it in three months. And, well, yeah, or uh, something like that. Yeah.
0: So it's a, it's a photo stenciled sandblasting mask. So basically, uh, we thankfully had. Um, the capability of of typesetting names and putting them on the film, which were was the artworks, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And then these large panels were were laid flat and then coated with this photo emulsion that I I created, um, and which was going to become the resist. Right, right. For sandblasting, but right. you you just through contact, and 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 exposure, and then washing out with high pressure water, you were left with a a flexible mask that was the resist for sandblast. Gotcha. And usually, you know, I used aluminum oxide to, to, to etch instead of sand. So it is a misnomer. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's a grit blasting technique, and to this day, um, because I created the uh, this the prefabricated stencils to to add names to the wall, to this day. I still use a version of that process to prefabricate wildlife art, right? and I do a line of glassware. So uh, I've, I really I, – I, I benefited greatly by having to invest time in, in, in coming up with another
1: technique. So um, out in the lobby before we came in here, you were talking about how this process of picking the songs was very introspective and whatnot. Mm. What was the process by which you picked these songs? Wow. <laughs> it was, um
0: I, I basically um went to the artist that impacted me the most. Um and then um like the, the the next two songs will be uh reminiscent of who I was listening to mostly at the time. Um as i said i'm a dancer mm-hmm. and i'm i'm not i'm not listening to the lyrics as much as i'm listening to the beat i i like the indigenous beat you know i like kind of um being able to stomp my heels but and do kind of a tribal thing and get kind of into a rhythm and if i'm listening to the words that's that's an improvement <laughs> but really I, I i get caught up in 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 artists that are able to really uh, allow me to move, and and then I just I just I I go there with the music. Um, so it's not the words. Sometimes it is, but I, I noticed that a lot of people are listening to words and then mouthing the words, and they have them in their head. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of being spirited. A little bit through movement, hmm. a lot through movement. Because <laughs> when I'm working, you know, in the shop, right? I mean, the music is on all the time, and I'm, 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 am I'm very rhythmic with my work, hmm. and, and and the music's almost always on in the hmm. background.
1: All right. Well, let's move on to your second song. Uh, what do you have here for us? Um, it is a Otis
0: Redding song, and it's called "Hard to Handle." And why did it make your three songs list? Well, it's, it's actually the song that I was listening to mostly when I'd go back and forth to D.C. to add names to the wall. Huh. Um, I was really, really open uh, just getting to know Otis at the time and he, uh, he affected me very deeply. So I do recall those songs at that
1: moment. And uh, that would have been what, on a tape? That would have been a cassette. Tape. <laughs> I'm yeah, trying to think that the, would have been a cas- era. We weren't to CDs yet. No, this is 1982. Okay,
0: so we were definitely into cassettes.
1: And so you were uh, driving to to, to the where? where from
0: from Cleveland to DC. Okay, um, back and forth. I would because I was fabricating name uh, stencils and then going to DC and holding them up to the wall to see if they were the right. Uh, font size because each panel is slightly different. Oh. It really, it was a very difficult technique. I mean, no one realized that the variations that you were trying to reproduce from panel to panel, you didn't want an added name to stand out. So, um,
1: But Otis was there with me the whole way. Okay, well, let's hear it. This is uh, Hard to Handle by Otis Redding, which was released in 1968 as a B-side shortly after his death. And then on the 1968 album, The Immortal Otis Redding, you're listening to Three Song Stories. I could definitely see your, your predilection for dancing. <laughs> you were kind of bopping around in the studio. What kind of car were you driving during Oh, that my era? God. I want a I want a scene oh set God. here. I want to. You were in like in a Chevette or something. Yeah, <laughs> really. It was a
0: green Pinto. <laughs> a Pinto. <laughs> a green Pinto. <laughs> oh. I mean, I, I mean, I I think I borrowed my my dad's station wagon to go to right. DC and back,
1: but um, but uh, no, the green Pinto. I, uh, my mom had a brown Pinto. It's one of my early childhood <laughs> memories. <laughs> the, the short-lived Pinto. Oh, they were sh- all short-lived. I mean, basically,
0: it was three cars a year, and you know, you'd pick it up for a hundred bucks, and you just try to keep it. Of course, you ended up putting way more money than if you invested a little bit more. But
1: uh, it got me around. Hmm. You know, um, I uh, I I drove up to DC about six years ago, um, just with my dog. I took a random road mm-hmm. trip, and I walked around. It was summer; it was very hot, and I I got. I I couldn't go up to the memorial wall Mm. because I had a dog with me. I didn't even think of that. They have a no dogs thing. So I kind of got to walk along, Mm -hmm. but I didn't get to go up close to it. So I've never actually been in the presence of it. Oh, well, there will be – I mean, you know, there's more time for that. Right. (laughs) But I just – I was remembering that as we were listening to the song and I was – Well, you know,
0: I hear many, many stories about when they go – Maya told me that she cut into the earth. So basically it's an underground memorial. And and the impact it has on you when you first see it is startling. Oh and, um, yeah, even so from I'm, a
1: even from a dog safe distance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what's your best concert experience? Have you seen many shows live? Oh, wow. Do you have one that stands out amongst them as the uh, pinnacle of your live music? There's so many, but one one just popped into
0: my mind when you asked that question, and uh, I got to hear Bob Marley before really, yeah,
1: in wow. Cleveland. I had uh, the episode that came out today. Uh, the guest said he was a huge Bob Marley fan, but he never mm-hmm. got to see him live. So here yeah. we are, full circle.
0: Yeah, this was uh, probably uh, 78, I
1: think. What was that like? What was the scene like?
0: Well, there was a lot of pot being smoked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um not, but it, not not high. Uh, <laughs>
1: that's not a cliche.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was. Uh, it was filled. The hall was filled. It was public hall in in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, and we were kind of up in the balcony, but you knew how special it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I remember the you know when I first saw the dead too, I, I heard how special it was.
1: I could see you dancing to the dead.
0: <laughs> not, yeah, but not no. It didn't quite you know. I mean, I it just didn't quite do it for me.
1: Oh really? Yeah, no, I was. not Well, I, can, I I resonate with that too because okay. it doesn't quite do it for me either. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: but everybody claimed it does, and and uh, I, I reggae was just more there for me. I don't know. So,
1: um, um, is there an album that you can think of that you will always listen to every track on, no matter how many times you listen to it? A no skip album, no skip track album. Um, You know, these days I'm uh, I'm hearing a
0: lot of great blues um, uh, from some some Florida artists, and uh, one that uh, speaks loudly to me, say, would be uh, Damon Fowler. Okay, have you heard of him? I have not. Well, you have an opportunity because he comes through um, for the Fort Myers area and play like out in Buckingham, Buckingham yeah. Blues Bar, okay, um, Tommy Lee Cook's place, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we saw Damon last week actually. Oh, really? And um, he's he's right up there for me, and so he's uh, he's he's something. And I hope you get a chance to to listen. I'm
1: trying to, this. to think, I had a guest on who was talking about a guy he likes from Florida who lives up near. Ocala, who comes to the Buckingham Blues Par? I think he said his name is J.J. Gray JJ and J.J. Gray, Fro? yeah,
0: Mofro. Now, okay. they, they're coming for New Year's Eve, I hear. our
1: tickets already sold out? No, I
0: don't think they've <laughs> even gone on sale. So all you people who are listening to this should just, like, check that website out every day. So when they do come, uh, we've seen him four or five times out in the backyard there. Um, and that's that's quite an event. And J.J.'s just old Florida um, I don't think he calls himself a, uh, himself a blues artist.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think he's just sort of uh, Florida swamp country. Swamp country, I <laughs> love it.
0: So JJ is actually – I just made
1: that up. I don't know if But JJ, accurate, but. you know,
0: I would listen to uh, – you know, I have to keep coming back to him too. But we have such an opportunity in this southwest Florida area for the blues. Uh, southwest Florida Blues Society is very active. And, uh, you know, we even have an, our own Marty Stokes on the island who I love. And so there's – there are great opportunities. You might have to venture out a little bit from your little island nest. Right, right. But the Prius knows
1: its way. Right. See, I just li- – I live in East Fort Myers, so I'm right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have no excuse. I know. I have no excuse. I need to brush <laughs> off the hermit in me. Um, how do you listen to music most often these days? Like do you do you have like Alexa play me, J.J. Gray or mm-hmm. do you have like CDs mm-hmm. or what are you – where are you at?
0: Um, uh CDs Spotify are are the two go-tos and so um but they're played through my old receiver and through my Bose speakers okay and um so you're not in you're not head you're not earbuds no, in the, in not the studio at all. okay no no i i it just doesn't do it for me i need to revert i need to hear the glass in the shop kind of like shake a little yeah, bit yeah jingle
1: a little bit yeah
0: I mean, <laughs> really so i i test the bass um but I don't want to bother the neighbors too, so I'm, I'm trying to be respectful. But um, I do get carried away. I'm, I'm sure you can hear from
1: the street. <laughs> when was the last time you bought music that uh, had a physical form?
0: Hmm. I bought Damon's new album last okay, week. Okay, okay. Um, so
1: I've had most of our guests we've asked that have been like, wow, I mean, it's been years oh, because they've no. all just gone full streaming, digital, and oh. iTunes, all that stuff.
0: Oh, no. I want to support live artists. And, and one way you can do that is to go hear them live and then buy their CDs from them, even though it's going to cost you a little more. They need gas money to make a living. Those guys, those folks are amazing. They, it's in
1: their blood. Support them. Know, support you know live music. We recorded two episodes of this yesterday with the two guys who make our theme song, mm-hmm. and they both are live musicians. And one of them said that you know he doesn't he's not really selling CDs anymore because the young kids come up and they're like, "What do I do with this no. shiny thing, old man?" That's their loss, because you know however however
0: those artists are, are trying to to help sell their music. Please support them. Now I'm not sure if they're getting <clears throat> excuse me a percentage on Spotify or anything
1: but um pennies I think. I mean yeah. I think if you're getting millions of listens then you're getting, you know, hundreds of dollars maybe but yeah.
0: Well, blues is my thing these days and you know I'm I'm really uh I'm so grateful that uh, the Benita Springs Blues Festival is around. The Sanibel Blues and Jazz Festival is around, and so there are many ways you could buy a ticket and then support support an event, um, or just you know when that tip jar goes around, stuff it if you can. Yeah. yeah. You know, so,
1: um, are there any mainstreamly popular acts out there like that are you know right there in the face of culture that you're a big fan of, or are you more like still listening to the older stuff? Well, a lot, a lot of this contemporary blues um, is is
0: is very, uh, uh, very, very accessible. Um. And and being created, you know, every like year. your
1: like your third song, right? I mean, isn't your third song a modern song? Am I correct in that? Yes, it is. When it, I it's, yeah. it was interesting when I googled it because I didn't recognize it, and you know, and most people are oh. pulling songs up from you know from 1968 and 1974, and 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 this is from an album that came out last year, right? Taj Mo, yeah, and and it is an album that came out last year. We went up to Gaines, my wife and I went
0: up to Gainesville to to listen to them live. And
1: where are they from? I don't, I'm not familiar.
0: I think California. Warning, mostly okay. uh, although Taj is probably from the Delta as well um, uh, but we've seen them independently Taj Mahal and Kev Mo mm-hmm. and uh, matter of fact uh, in 2000 we saw Kev Mo at the Monterey Blues Festival Jazz and Blues Festival and he was just off to the side and we knew who he was but my goodness we were taken by him. And Taj, we've seen uh, several times over the years. But when the opportunity came to see them together, wow. And so that album CD is, is potent. Um, that's something that I can listen to. I'll be listening to you know, a, a go-back-to CD album. Um, and so—but these guys have been around a long time. And so they're—but uh, together, co-creating together— Really, was something special.
1: So, what's the story? You know, you drove to Gainesville to see him, but you know, the other two songs that you chose were from, you know, way back in your life. So, why did you choose this as your third song?
0: Well, I was really going chronologically.
1: I well, guess. yeah, it is chronologically, but you're going from 1982 to
0: 2017. Well, I wanted to, this one, this last one, to represent um, how we express ourselves through the blues, and that's dancing. And so we're going to a lot of blues festivals. What we do is we'll fly into a city and then um, bookend um, the beginning and the end with, say, maybe a, a festival, a music festival, and then rent, rent our, our, our RV and go camping in between. So we, we live it. Uh, this is something that we really um, – uh, we met on the dance floor, or we want to continue dancing. It's what brings us back together all the time. And uh, uh, so there's a lot of new, new uh, work being produced by young blues artists, and it's it's not just BB King, sort of stuff. It's, right, right. It's the roots are there, but I'm um, so grateful that there are youngsters picking up, picking up the guitars and the rhythms, and not a lot because when you go out. Really, it's just old fogies like me that are really showing up. <laughs> yeah, you know, really, it's it's like you know, sixty-year-olds uh, that are attending these events, and I'm I, I just shake my head. I'm going, oh my goodness, the youngsters are are I think missing out because it's just not on the popular scene, as you asked me. You know, what what is it that is out there now? This is out there, but they're only like maybe. Fifty people that show up to these events, Hmm. so it's all small hall, a lot of small juke joint sort of um, uh, possibilities to to culturally experience this stuff. Where did you see him in
1: Gainesville?
0: Uh, It was at the University of Gainesville Performing Arts Hall. Okay, Um, and we've um, uh, uh, we've we saw we've seen Derek Trucks up there Mm -hmm. before he even. uh, got together with Susan, and oh my God! I mean, this, he, he was totally unlike how he is now. He was footloose and fancy <laughs> free, and uh, I almost chose him for one of my songs. But um, uh, it's he's, you know. So we 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 like to listen to Derek's older works. <laughs> <laughs> it was just he was allowed to go where he needed to go right. back then, and um, so sometimes you know you things happen and your music changes yeah so he's there for his wife
1: okay well let's let's hear your third song and imagine you and your wife um, in Gainesville listening to it that's uh this is That's Who I Am by Tajmo from their 2017 album Tajmo it's Luke Century's third song on this episode of Three Song Stories You know, for someone who said that they don't really listen to the words that much, mm-hmm. that was a pretty romantic song to be imagined in you hanging out with your wife yeah. in Gainesville, too. Oh, yeah. We were
0: actually <laughs> we, were, we were hanging out all right, and we were actually the only one dancing. The only ones who were dancing, everyone else, was sitting, you know, like they were supposed to. We were in the aisles, got up. You're the, those people. <laughs> Luke, and, Luke and D were just uh, letting it go. There was no way we were going to sit through this concert. And so um, no one told us to sit down. And we ch- we tried to be um, not in anyone's way, but uh, you know the lyric um, part of the lyric, looking for myself when I found oh, you. Oh yeah, no,
1: that's the that's, that's the one that I first it. latched onto. That I, right, I, I was at the crow's nest with you when I heard that. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I just felt like Ooh, right. That's the full circle. It was a circle dance
0: um, at the crow's nest quite a bit when we were listening to the modulators from Cincinnati. They they everyone fell in love there. You know. During the the eighties uh, so we had a, we actually had on captiva a lot of good music coming
1: through hmm um uh, you mentioned captiva um you, you're an experimental artist mm-hmm. uh, Robert Rauschenberg mm-hmm. did you guys ever cross paths yeah sure yeah no I, I knew a lot of
0: folks who worked for him I knew Robert himself um and uh, actually you know I probably could have gone there and worked. As as one of those, the tribe, yeah, yeah. But I just needed to do my own thing, yeah. And uh, did so, you ever party out there? I know yeah, you had some pretty good boat Yo, house yeah, parties. Yeah, there was some <laughs> some partying going on there. Really, not my cup of tea, though. Right, um, that wasn't your scene. No, it wasn't. Um, I, uh, the Voytex invited us out, and and they, you know, D and I went, and uh, it just never really totally gelled. Uh, just wasn't our scene. Um, so we gave it a whirl, and um we were welcome, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it was um it just wasn't for us and, yeah. but you know I, he's an amazing artist and and um love love his work love a lot of his work but uh i i I think I collaborated here and there a little bit with you know some of the workers who are doing work for him, right. So, you know, I was a little bit a
1: part of it. I, um, I got the opportunity to go out there to the residency about mm-hmm. five years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> their normal photographer that they would have come in to take pictures of all the different residents in their mm-hmm. little places had fallen through. And so I was recommended. So I got to spend 10 hours out there with a camera. OK. And I enjoyed taking pictures of all the artists. That was great. But I really enjoyed being in his fabrication house. Amazing. I just took pictures of – because there's still the stuff there where he left. It. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's like the to do lists on the wall and stuff like that. Yeah, I just walked around and took pictures of that stuff. <laughs> it's amazing. And the fish house out there. Yeah, too, I got just... to stand on the roof of the fish house. And, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Now it was, there's it was I felt great... like I was brushing right up against history, you know, great history. And he did so much for
0: Captiva by purchasing land and preventing development. Uh, from extending unnecessarily, mm-hmm. and he was a great supporter of the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, and he he had he has priorities straight as far as the
1: islands go. Uh, uh, we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any final thoughts for this process? You want to try to wrap it up some? Well, it's, it's it, it was a growth process for
0: me, you know, to be able to try to tie one's life together through through music. It's uh, you know in a structured way. I need structure, <laughs> right? So um, I, I, I'm so grateful for, for being your guest, and uh, I I I think it. I, I I hope that people come out of the woodwork and scream. I want to be on your show.
1: Well, well we are having some screams. <laughs> oh, we are having some yeah. screams. And what's interesting for me and for Richard, and I think for listeners too, is that you know this process becomes part of our memory, and so I'm hearing now songs that were guests' songs that have more meaning to me because of the story they told me. And I think that's just sort of how music works. It just keeps going out. And in some ways, I think it ties into your whole artistic process somehow. I think being, op-
0: is... being open and, and being brave, you know, just like just go- going where no man's gone before. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Uh, Luke Century, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much. We record and produce this show in the WGCU studios on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is our show's co-creator and producer. Our online content producer is Tara Callaghan. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme music was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Here's your friendly reminder to send us your song stories. I know you've got one. Just find a song that will always bring you back to a time and place and story and write it out and email it to my song Story at WGCU.org. We'll get in touch and help you record your story and use it as a parting tune at some point down the Three Song Stories Road. For my parting tune this week, I'm going back to a trailer in my dad's front yard in Kansas City the summer of 2001. I was staying there for a few weeks at the end of a multi-month road trip. I was actually considering making a big change and not going back to Fort Myers at all, except to get my stuff and come back north. You see, the relationship I was in was ending against my wishes, and this was all happening at a distance, and it was all happening in the sweltering summer heat. And through it all, I was listening to the newest album from my favorite band, Moxie Fruvis, that had come out that previous fall. This song was the one that was ringing the truest. It's called Independence Day. And it's the song that I wound up sharing with a good friend who I was corresponding with back home, and who wound up being the main force that made me decide to come home, and who wound up later becoming my partner and my daughter's mother, and still one of my best friends today, despite the fact that we went our separate ways on the 4th of July, about eight years later. This is Independence Day by Moxie Fruvis from their 1999 album, Thornhill. I'm Mike Canire. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. Like a frog singing You Are My Sunshine on The Muppet Show. Oh, I think the like, frog or the frog. I don't. I don't know if it was Kermit or not. Because like they got, they had like you know they had your your side frogs, you know. what yeah. I mean? they had you know. We can't all be Kermits. all right? It's.